Hey, so I want to start off by saying that this is a podcast about healthcare and not the protests against anti-black racism and police brutality that have been gripping the news and our attention lately. There are a lot of good racialized voices speaking on this issue that you can and should be listening to right now. However, I want to say before we get in that we stand firmly behind the protests and the protesters, and we recognize that we live in a racist society in Ontario. It is the job of all of us, particularly people with privilege and resources, to listen, to learn, to boost, to donate, and to put the work in to dismantle the racism that permeates our lives. It is here in Ontario, and we need to take action in our own backyards. Particularly, I want to say we must resist the temptation to look at what is happening in the States and to feel like we're superior in some way. Personally, I don't think clear, terrifying signs of fascism should be what we hold ourselves to to make ourselves feel better. Black, indigenous, and racialized people are dying here too, and we can and we must do better. We will be donating our June Patreon to anti-black racism initiatives that we'll post about in the coming days. We're talking about putting together an episode on this, uh, which we'll be rolling out as soon as we can. Today we'll be talking about healthcare, and we talked about this a little bit in the episode, but want to emphasize that our healthcare system reflects our racism, with hospitalization rates that are greater and health outcomes that are worse for those from racialized backgrounds. So keep standing up, keep fighting back, keep speaking out against racism, keep speaking out against fascism, stay safe out there, and enjoy today's pod. Welcome to Ontario Lab, podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and this week we are going to peel back a bit from the day-to-day, often breathless coverage of the impact of COVID-19 on our lives and talk about the healthcare system as a whole. What kind of pressure was it under before COVID-19, and how are things being impacted right now by the current public health crisis? Now, when we talk about healthcare in a political context, there's one concept we hear politicians rail about more than anything else, wait times. This has morphed into hallway healthcare in recent years, but the underlying anxiety is the same, that our healthcare system faces greater demand than it has the capacity to fill. But what can provincial politicians actually do about this anxiety? What is the system we actually need to change, and how did it get this way? We're going to dive into these questions in two parts today with two amazing guests that I am so excited to introduce you to. But first, let's do a quick refresher on the issue. In Ontario, we actually do a decent job with hospital wait times for those who can be turned around fairly quickly. Health Quality Ontario, now part of Ontario Health, tracks these things. It says that for those who come to the ER and can be discharged after treatment and don't require admission to the hospital, we meet established wait time targets between 80 and 92% of the time. However, for those that require actual admission to the hospital and need a bed and who have a target wait time of eight hours maximum in the ER, we only hit this target 35% of the time, with most patients seeing an average wait time for admission of up to 16 hours. Older patients face longer times that stretch up to 24 hours. So clearly a problem. Why is this the case? One reason that experts often cite is that Ontarians use the emergency room as their primary care site more than they should. According to one comparative survey, 47% of adults in Ontario reported going to the emergency room for a condition they thought could have been treated by their family doctor. This is the highest rate among OECD nations. ERs are also not great places to treat long-term conditions, and so not only does it congest the emergency room, but it often results in worse outcomes for patients. A second reason is our severe shortage of long-term care beds. 15% of all hospital beds in Ontario are filled with patients who are waiting for long-term care. You can't admit someone to the hospital if you don't have room for them. And so patients end up waiting in the ER or in the hallway, hence the term hallway healthcare. The average wait time for transfer from a hospital to long-term care was 13 weeks in 2018, up from 10 in 2015. Now, Doug Ford's PCs have a pledge to invest in long-term care beds up to 15,000 by 2024. Some estimates have put us at a need for 55,000 beds by 2030 just to maintain current wait times. So a lot of folks who know about this have looked at the target the Conservatives have set as not one that is guaranteed to fix the problems that we're facing. Lastly, when we're talking about wait times, 
we need to talk about the determinants of health. We know that health outcomes are not evenly distributed across the population, and that health inequities mirror social and economic inequities. Among people with the highest income, 12% reported multiple chronic conditions. For those with the lowest income, this rate doubles. People living in the poorest neighborhoods face a hospitalization rate 2.5 times higher than those living in the richest neighborhoods for conditions that could be managed outside the hospital. These health inequities are even more pronounced for women and non-binary people, Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities, people with disabilities, members of the LGBTQ plus community, and many, many others. So those are just some of the reasons why our wait times are long. And that would be bad enough. But when you layer on COVID-19 an aging population, and the fact that our long-term care sector is already facing severe quality of service issues, to put it mildly, if we don't do something about this sooner rather than later, things could stand to get much, much worse. As a province, how do we get here? Where can we go? And where should we be focusing our efforts moving forward? To help answer these questions and more, I'm so excited to welcome back to the pod Dr. Bob Bell. Uh, Dr. Bell is an orthopedic surgeon who has held a variety of senior leadership roles in Ontario's health system, including COO of Princess Margaret Hospital, CEO of the University Health Network, and most recently, he was Ontario's Deputy Minister of Health, responsible for overseeing Ontario's whole health system. Uh, Bob, welcome back to the pod. Hey, good morning, Chris. Thanks for the invitation. Well, it's uh, so nice to have you back. I'll also say that Grima Talwar Kapoor is joining us for this part of the discussion. Uh, Thanks so much, Grima. How are you doing? I'm good. Excited for this conversation. So wait times have been an issue in politics uh, for as long as I can remember. You know, I'm curious from your vantage point, how did this become an issue in the first place? And, you know, what uh, have maybe some of the changes been, you know, over the last, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years? So if you look at it, let's go back just the last election in Ontario, back to uh, 2016. And certainly, um, healthcare was not really a major issue in that uh, in that campaign. But the one thing that was really focused on by the eventual successful party, obviously the progressive conservatives, was the sense of hospital overcrowding and wait times to get into hospital. So let's just unpack that a little bit, since that's the most recent election. Is that okay by you? That's that's perfect. Super. So what do we mean by hospital overcrowding? Well, you know, uh, what this means is that there are simply too many people waiting for treatment in the available resources that hospitals have. So the number of beds that a hospital have. And those waits may be experienced by people coming in through the emergency department. So somebody who has let's say, a chronic lung condition and now has pneumonia. They need to be admitted to hospital for a few days for pulmonary therapy, for physiotherapy for their lungs, for antibiotics for their pneumonia. And they typically would arrive in the emergency department. And the question there is, how long do they wait to get into a bed in the hospital? And, you know, that should happen within probably at most about eight hours. That's the target in Ontario. Now, for the longest time, that target has been wildly exceeded. Wait times have been in the 20 hours, sometimes longer than a day for some admissions in some places. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not being treated. That person with an pneumonia on top of their chronic lung condition would be receiving treatment in the emergency department, an IV would be started, they would be getting antibiotics. So it's not as if they're not receiving any therapy at all. But of course, lying in a stretcher in the emergency department in not very private circumstances is not where anybody expects to be treated in our health system. So certainly that's the easiest thing to measure, is how long does it take someone coming into a hospital to get a hospital bed? So you'd ask yourself, well, do we need more hospitals? Do we need more hospital beds? Is that the problem? And the answer is no, not really. The thing that we really need to think through is who is currently present in our hospital system who doesn't need to be there. And everybody vaguely interested in Ontario health has heard the rather has heard the rather pejorative term of alternate level of care or ALC. That refers to people who could have an alternate level of care. They no longer need to be in the hospital, but they're there because 
there's nowhere else. To go. And these people are, you know, stopping other folks who need hospital care from getting into the hospital in timely fashion. What kind of care do these ALC patients need? Let's face it, it's not their fault that they no longer need to be treated in hospital, but they are still taking up the bed. They're typically people who need to go to long-term care. That's the longest wait that people experience in our health system is progressing between the hospital sector and long-term care. There are some shorter stays of ALC patients who are waiting for home care to be arranged for them. That is to go back to their home and get care from nurses and support workers in the home. But the real long waits, waits that may take as long as, you know, several months to a year are usually experienced by people in hospital who don't need to be in hospital who are waiting for long-term care. So that's probably, if you look at the key metric that defines long wait times in our system, there are other times that we can talk about times to see a specialist, times to see a family doctor, but probably the one that was politically most sensitive in the last election was this time to get into a hospital and the length of that wait related to hospital overcrowding and people waiting for long-term care. Thanks, Bob. That's a really helpful breakdown of the the relationship between um, emergency room wait times and long-term care and alternative levels of care. We've talked a little bit about capacity and strain in the hospital sector, but could you talk about some of the conditions that we're seeing currently in the long in the long-term care sector and whether these two issues on wait times in hospitals and the concerns and issues we're seeing in long-term care, whether they're related and and how do we sort of work through them and think through them? I think the, you know, like everything else in our healthcare system, our perspective on everything has changed because of COVID-19, right? And, you know, when we think about what's happened in Ontario specifically with COVID-19, um, I think it's fair to say that things have gone probably pretty well in general. Certainly our hospital system was not overwhelmed like happened in Madrid or Bergamo or New York City um, or many other places in the Western world where health systems have really struggled to keep up to the pace of care required by the numbers of people presenting with COVID-19. That has not happened in Ontario. We went from nine ventilators. Suddenly, everybody in Ontario, everybody in Canada knows what a ventilator is. Nine ventilators per 100,000 people to 20 ventilators per 100,000 people in about two weeks. And lots of credit to Ontario Health, lots of credit to Critical Care Services Ontario for having a surge plan in place and activating that surge plan in the way that protected us. So our hospital sector has been protected. Our hospital sector has worked extremely well in dealing with COVID-19, where, of course, we have been horrified as a province is in the impact that this virus has had in long-term care. And if you look at the relative statistics related to COVID-19, even though only, I think it's about 20% of infections have actually occurred in long-term care. When we look at the deaths resulting from COVID-19, nearly 80% of those have occurred in long-term care settings. So communal settings that are caring for seniors who are either frail or have cognitive impairment, This has been the real epicenter of COVID-19 in Ontario. And we've heard the terrible stories of, you know, the care in five nursing homes where the military was called in. We've heard the reports that the military wrote about their experiences, the neglect, unfortunately, that some residents experienced. Now, that was only five long-term care centers out of the roughly 630 in Ontario. But let's face it, the kinds of things we heard from the military experience shouldn't happen in any long-term care setting. And what's really become obvious through this is Ontario's long-term care sector needs radical change in a variety of ways. Summarize those quickly. You know, number one, 
we have 78,000 Ontarians roughly living in long-term care settings. And of those, nearly 30,000 share a room with someone else. They're in so-called C and D residences that are you know, needing upgrading to private rooms. And in the case of any kind of, this is not the first time we've learned about the risk of infection. You know, Every year we have long-term care facilities that are closed down by influenza or by you know, gastrointestinal viruses because living in the same room with another person who's frail and older and susceptible to viral illnesses is a recipe for disaster. So our, our communal settings where people share rooms, share bathrooms, and the fact that we have long-term care workers who work between long-term care centers in order to put together a full-time job. These people just are at huge risk of becoming transmitters of viral illness by moving from one setting to another. So there are some real problems that have come to light with long-term care in Ontario. In addition to what we knew were long waits to get into long-term care. Yeah, one of, there's been a lot of uh, public debate over, you know, this sort of the the origin point of the issues that we're seeing in our long-term care sector. Certainly the military and Canadian Forces report that was released brought a lot of them to light in a very dramatic way. Observers of the system and, and those familiar with it have uh, been quick to point out that many of these issues have been issues for a long time and have pointed back to privatization of the system in the 90s or other factors as as contributing. I'm wondering just from, you know, the perspective of a uh, a former deputy minister and somebody who's you know for more familiar with the workings of the healthcare system than both. Just for, curious for your thoughts as to like how we how we got here in the first place. Yeah, well, you know how we deal with people in society who are at risk, who are frail, who are sustaining cognitive decline, decline at the end of life. You know the model of care for these Ontarians is probably the fundamental existential question. I mean, Chris, we put them into communal settings with other uh, seniors who are similarly at risk from neglect, from disease, from a variety of uh, circumstances. Or do we follow the pattern of um, countries like Denmark? Don't allow seniors to be placed in these kind of settings and who focus on keeping them in their own homes for as long as possible and avoiding long-term care. And, you know, that's that's been part of the challenge for Ontario for some time is uh, the last government tried to expand home care, and that was somewhat successful. The current situation where long-term care is relied upon for uh, people as they progress down this pathway of decline at the end of life. You know, there are 38,000 people currently on the long-term care waiting list who are waiting to get into a long-term care setting, being cared for by really inadequate home care facilities for what they need. And this is one of the big challenges that we've got and has been present over the last uh, 30 years is what kind of model of care are we gonna provide we know that Ontarians over the age of 75 are expanding in a population by 4% a year. And that, you know, is a big challenge from a demographic point of view for our healthcare system. We're currently spending $5 billion on long-term care. You know, if we were to continue the focus on long-term care as the model that we provide for folks, uh, that number will go up dramatically. I think that that's a really helpful breakdown of all of the the variables that are sort of affecting the multiple parts of our healthcare system. And um, I think people notionally know of, of the demographic shifts that are taking place, and we've known about them for, for decades. And um, COVID has certainly shone a light on whether how prepared we were in some areas versus others. Um, and thinking through, you know, what the the rate of transmission of 
of COVID has been in long-term care settings versus versus people that receive home care and whether there's, you know, whether different models of care yield different types of outcomes um, depends on the broader support structure that that revolves people, right? And whether you can stay in your home to receive home care depends on whether you've got a, a house or a home. Um, it depends on whether you've got um, whether you've got the cognitive ability to either help coordinate your own care or if you're living with family members that can help coordinate your care. And so as we think of system coordination from the micro now to the macro, the government has identified better system coordination as the answer to fixing many of the problems that confront our healthcare system, from wait times to hospital capacity. And they're moving to consolidate a lot of healthcare activity under one provincial super agency that the pod has discussed with you the last time you were on. And so as we think about how best to transform the healthcare system so that it can meet the demands of not only today, but of the future. Um, How much focus should we be placing on increasing efficiency and coordination? And how much more efficiency can we wring out of the system? Or are there just other structural issues that need to be confronted head on that can't sort of be worked through through coordination and, and design alone? When we talk about public health units, uh, we're talking about something that's different from our publicly funded health system. The old 14 Lin um, regional management system that was under the last government has been changed to five regions for hospitals and for the publicly funded parts of the health system under this government. Now, having said that, Under COVID-19, they've reverted back to the 14 Lynn regions. I don't know if you're aware of that. People don't generally know that. Yeah, I was actually looking for signs of the new system when I was putting together this. I was like, oh, wait, no, these are all the same. These are all the same organizations. They're they're the same geographies. You know, there's there's Toronto Central, there's Central West, there's Central East, etc. All the old names have been recast, but... And they've been turned into organizations that are led by hospitals rather than by Lin CEOs. And then there are the five regions that that kind of collect these 14 regions together at Ontario Health. But when you're talking about public health units, you're talking about something different. And this is the part of the system that's responsible for restaurant inspections and, of course, currently under COVID is responsible for the contact tracing of anybody who tests positive with a COVID-19 test. And there, there are 34 public health units across Ontario, and this is a big problem. You know, it was recognized as being a big problem under SARS. Justice uh, Campbell, Justice Archie Campbell, who reviewed our SARS response said, hey, having 34 public health units is crazy. We should have smaller numbers, we should have them better staffed, and we should align them with the publicly funded health system. But of course, public health units, you probably, you know, your listeners may not know this, they don't report to the province, Ministry of Health. They report to regional, they report to municipal or regional um, health boards that are municipally governed and municipally created. The provincial government pays about half the cost of public health, but the people who work in public health don't report to the provincial government. They report to municipal government. Now, is this important? Well, yeah, it really is, because in an epidemic, in an outbreak like we're currently uh, experiencing, uh, there's a breakdown, 34 units who report to somebody who's not Ontario Health our, our primary contact tracing foot soldiers in the war against COVID. And they're being directed by a different general. So we've got, you know, a breakdown in the hierarchy of how we respond to something based on the, uh, the architecture of the health system. Now, that hasn't been front and center in our reorganization plans, anybody's reorganization plans for the health system, because fortunately, we don't usually live in an epidemic. But certainly, that lack of coordination has been felt under COVID, no question. 
Yeah. And when I think of sort of like a traditional, when I think of the conservative response to hospital capacity, you know, the PC plan to take the sort of the the lens and consolidate them into a larger agency is one that kind of makes sense with a conservative ideology. Um, you know, we can uh, wring more efficiency and coordinated care out of the system by, you know, reducing back office expenses and, and duplication. So I'm, I'm curious if you think that, A, that this is the, the if for the healthcare system, if this is uh, the right approach, if, can we, you know, is, is this a, is the problem of hospital capacity and wait times that we've discussed solvable in part or full through increasing efficiency? If not, and if you were, uh, you know, DM of Health still or Minister of Health today and asked to bring a plan forward to address uh, capacity, what kind of plan would you bring? Well, you know, the interesting thing is the changes that the conservatives have made have doubled healthcare bureaucracy, right? Yes. <laughs> because, you you know, when I was deputy minister, um, the Ministry of Health was responsible for directing the regional health delivery that Ontarians experienced with the lens. Now, the Ministry of Health still exists. It hasn't had a dramatic reduction in the number of people that work there, but you now also have Ontario Health. And Ontario Health is responsible for performance in the health system, but the Ministry of Health is still also responsible for the health system. And there's now another Ministry of Long-Term Care run by Minister Fullerton. So you got yeah. Mr. Elliott with a ministry, you got Minister Fullerton with a ministry, you've got the old Ministry of Health, you've got Ontario Health. You thought you were eliminating the lens, but in response to COVID, the lens are still there. 14 regional areas under the Ontario Health rubric. You've got these five other super regions. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this this is a massive increase in bureaucracy from my my reading. Now, having said that, the people in charge of the Ministry of Health, Deputy Minister Angus, the person in charge of Ontario Health, CEO Matt Anderson, are both extraordinarily experienced, effective healthcare leaders who've done a terrific job in response to COVID and, you know, are people that I trust intimately to run health systems. But you got to ask yourself, you know, uh, who's in charge, right? Is it uh, when the when the health system breaks down in long term care? Is it Minister Fullerton? Is it Minister Elliott? Whose ministry has responsibility for that? Is that under Ontario Health or is that under a separate ministry structure? It's extraordinarily confusing. And then you have these other structures called Ontario Health Teams that are supposed to integrate the system, but really have a poorly defined role in what the health system should be doing. And you may have noticed that in the response to COVID-19, you haven't heard much about Ontario health teams, have you? Maybe that's unfair because the government's only two years into its, you know, its desire to have uh, to have uh, Ontario health teams play a bigger role. My view is there should be one provincial organization of the health system. And it should either be led by the deputy minister of the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Forget about separating long-term care from the Ministry of Health. I know it's a big, big portfolio, but you can't take long-term care out of the health system and expect to have a high-quality health system. So I think there should be one entity. Now, whether it's run out of Ontario Health or it's run out of the Ministry of Health, you got to clearly define who's responsible for what, and you got to switch people around. You can't have two bodies with double the number of people, uh, you know, running the healthcare system. And you also need local organizations that integrate care locally. And in our view, in the last ministry serving the last government, you would have LINS, which cost Ontario a total of about $60 million a year. It wasn't a big expense. Sounds like a lot, but when you think about managing a budget of, you know, $64 billion, having $60 million spent on the regional leadership of healthcare, not a lot of money, especially when you look at the fact that Canadian healthcare administration is one of the lowest in the Western world. We really are very 
low on the amount of administrative money we spend. And Ontario is the least expensive administrative system, at least when we started uh, two years ago, it was the least expensive in Canada. We thought it was important to have integration of home care, primary care, mental health services in local regions. And this was very similar to what the Conservatives have have proposed with Ontario health teams. So, you know, whether you call them sub-LINs, whether you call them Ontario health teams, uh, integration of primary care, mental health care, community services, home care in the local region is important. But that cannot possibly be the way that you organize healthcare on a provincial basis because having, as the Conservatives have proposed, you know, 50 or 60 Ontario health teams is impossibly too many. And that's why you've seen under the COVID response, Ontario health teams haven't been mentioned. And if, if I can uh, poke on that a little bit more, how does that actually help the issue of, of, of wait times and, you know, like hospital hospital capacity? If you have um, a more, a better coordinated local system and a, a more integrated structure at the top? Yeah, well, I think it's a bit of a pipe dream that have been proposed <laughs> by this government that if you better coordinate local care, you're going to reduce the demand on hospitals. And I'm not the only one to say that. Anthony Dale, who's the you know the CEO of the Ontario Hospital Association, plus any hospital individual uh, who's used to the hospital system, who's led hospitals, will tell you that better coordination of primary care really doesn't reduce demand on hospitals. It may reduce some of the low acuity patients who arrive in the emergency department. You know, can you look after a sprained ankle in the office of a primary care doc if their office is open and avoid an emergency admission or an emergency visit? The answer is yes, you can. But those are not the real problems that we're dealing with with hospital. The real problem is what we started off with, and that is the people who are waiting for admission to hospitals. And waiting for admission to hospital is an issue that pertains to what we talked about with the so-called ALC patients, alternate level of care. We have to have better ways of housing, better ways of keeping people out of long-term care. And once they need long-term care, we have to have more long-term care capacity to deal with the 4% a year annual increase in the number of people over the age of 75. That's the real problem, not the coordination of local care. We may be able to change the model of local delivery of care, as I mentioned earlier, to allow more people to be cared for with home care. But that is not a matter of coordinating care. That's a matter of actually redesigning the home care system. And that's not going to happen through a system of 50 OHTs. That requires provincial coordination to help develop with current home care providers what a new home care system could look like. So that was our interview with Dr. Bob Bell, who we love talking to and who can really sort of like nobody else give you a systems perspective on what is going on. But what about the front line? Healthcare is an enormously complex system, as we've already discussed, but at the end of the day, it's delivered by individuals to individuals, nurses and doctors to patients, and they're primarily who sees the impact of the policy choices and the impact that those policy choices have on the ground in people's lives. So we wanted to check in with an actual frontline professional, friend of the pod, a recent nursing graduate and political organizer and host of the new What's Going On podcast, Tyler Watt. Tyler, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of this podcast. I've been dying to come on and i'm so excited to be here well uh the feeling is uh mutual we've been following you uh on sort of twitter since the beginning and into and into youtube so it's like yeah amazing to just uh, have you on i also want to say that for this interview uh, this portion of the episode alvin tedjo is joining me hi alvin hey chris and uh tyler it's uh great to have you on here if people don't know tyler from his social media they should recognize him from a couple of uh, ads for the federal liberal party as well during the last election where he uh definitely made his mark on the world and uh yeah you should be one of his almost fifteen thousand followers on twitter and really follow what's going on every day so 
I really love your takedowns of, of uh, Premier Ford. That was a really useful way to uh, communicate with people. And we're really excited to have you here, Tyler. I wanted to start off, Tyler, by asking you about sort of your experience in the long-term care sector. So I wanted to take your temperature on what has had to be a really difficult time for anyone who's working in the sector. How are you doing? How are you feeling about it? And sort of what was your experience with it? Well, I was really thankful to have the opportunity to get some nursing experience within the long-term care sector. And I have some nursing experience there through my uh, education, but I also worked within long-term care during my time working as both a personal support worker and also a community support worker. Um, Those were jobs that I did working during school and also my summer jobs um, uh, in break in between school years. So I do have some experience in long-term care and I'm really thankful for the opportunity because it was very eye-opening to the uniqueness of what long-term care is in Ontario but also the complexity and the current state of it, I guess. I'm used to working in a mostly public system where I'm working like in the hospitals, in acute care. So working in in an industry that is, for the most part, privatized was definitely interesting. And I think the longer that I was in nursing schools, the more I really started to kind of see issues that exist within long-term care and it is it is an incredible place to work you know you get to care for you have the privilege of caring for Ontario's most vulnerable seniors who have lived such an interesting and amazing life and to have the opportunity to talk to these people and care for them is is truly wonderful something that I will always be uh, very grateful for. Um, But I think one of my biggest takeaways from the whole experience was just how much work that we have to do for them. You know, there wasn't, I would say that there probably wasn't one shift where I was entering that floor where there wasn't, where where we weren't short-staffed, whether it be a personal support worker or personal support workers who, who called in or maybe we were short a nurse and, and things like that. And I would say that already, if you were to be fully staffed, it wasn't enough. You're working with what I describe as less than the bare minimum of what we need to provide quality and um, consistent care to everyone. We need, we need more personal support workers, especially because the workload is getting um, harder and harder. And I think that we're still operating in 2020 as if it is still 2000. We are dealing with an aging population. We have people that are living longer who now have way more um, health ailments and, and other health comorbidities that we're dealing with. So it's not the same anymore. It's like you go into the, to the retirement home and visit your sweet old grandma, but maybe now they're dealing with things like diabetes and dementia and, um, you know, that physical stuff where maybe they can't walk anymore. They need assistance with getting dressed, with feeding, the the workload has become really heavy and, and it's changed a lot and i don't think that we have fully adjusted yet yeah and i want i want to dive into that a little bit um we just uh, came out of an interview with uh, a dr bob bell former deputy minister of health and long term care um about health system capacity and you just outlined a few resource pressures that um, you felt in your day to day. I'm curious, like when you were sort of going into a shift and seeing those kinds of pressures, what did that look like? And, and B, you know, what was the feeling on the floor amongst you and your staff colleagues about, you know, why those existed? Like, what were you, when you face those kinds of realities, like, what are you grumbling about? What do you wish those in the policy and the administration system would be doing differently? That's a really good question. And I think, the answer is a bit complicated because I think there it's a multifaceted answer here. So I think part of this is that unfortunately the staff are used to it at this point. 
Um, so we're used to being short staffed and we're used to dealing with like heavy workloads and all of that. Not that that makes it okay or anything, um, but it really does show that this is kind of the norm that, that we're dealing with. But it also adds to the issue of compassion fatigue and just and work fatigue as well, which is a huge thing right now that is kind of plaguing through on the healthcare system. You see this in hospitals and primary care. It's not, not just long-term care. Um, it's uh, it's definitely worth a topic of researching compassion fatigue. Um, and it, I think that that in particular takes its toll on staff. And when you're dealing with such intense conditions every single day, and it doesn't seem to be improving I think it can really take its toll on people and it and it's kind of this cycle of okay so you maybe you no longer have the energy to come in this particular shift or you're you're just you're just so exhausted but you still come in so maybe you can't give 100% today and then maybe someone else calls in in sick and it's just this like never-ending cycle of people are just so overworked underpaid and it makes it difficult to have such a smooth and efficient system, which is what everyone wants. Like, er- like everyone is going in with hoping that they can deliver safe and quality care to their patients. Um, so it, it, it's really difficult. And, you know, team morale can be low. You know, people can be upset and rightfully so when, when you're working with such minimal stuff and there's so much pressure on you to do your job right and it's such an important job too like personal support workers those people are so underappreciated they they are they are seriously some of the most wonderful workers and they're so important to the healthcare system especially in long-term care where it is it is so heavy those pressures it, it, it slowly gets to people and i think that we need to really do a better job at alleviating those pressures. And I don't, I don't necessarily know what that would look like maybe from a government standpoint because of our, our heavily privatized system. So Tyler, let's talk about relieving those pressures because uh, I mean, obviously some of it is um, capacity in terms of adding beds. Um, But it does seem like a lot of it right now uh, that the pandemic is exposing is around um, staffing levels, right? How do we make working at a long-term care facility um, more attractive to work in? How do we make um, becoming a personal support worker uh, more attractive of a field for people to want to uh, to want to do? And maybe this is also exposing the fact that a privately run long-term care um system isn't necessarily the solution. So being part of the system for a little while there, where do you think we could uh, sort of focus on in terms of alleviating some of those pressures? That's a really great question, Alvin. And number one, I would say is personal support workers need to be paid more. I think it's rather unfair um, how little they're paid for the type of work that they have to do. It is heavy, heavy, heavy work. And they are so critical to the care that we're providing to these residents. Um, We would not be able to give them their basic activities of daily livings like eating, uh, which, you know, we've even seen glimpses of that in the military report. Without without these workers who are overworked, underpaid, totally exhausted, we would not be able to provide the care that we need to. So they need to be paid more. Because a lot of the personal support workers, or sometimes we call them personal care attendants, often they are working multiple jobs. And I know people that are working like 70 hours a week, just so they can make ends meet for their families at home. So maybe they're working um, at at the hospital, and and then they're also working at the long-term care home, or maybe they're working at multiple long-term care homes. So I think number one is they need to be paid more. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's, we've just come off of, um, and, you know, this has been an episode in many ways about uh, system capacity. But one of the things, uh, and one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you want to talk about long-term care is the impact that 
those pressures have on 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 individuals in the system. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, compassion fatigue, and, and and I must admit that that kind of really struck me because I, I think anyone would look at a long term sector and hope that that is a place where human compassion is on sort of maximum display. And so you know the PCs have a plan to invest uh, invest in some beds, and you know it. We've talked a little bit about how that might not be enough, but that's a, a good thing. More staff is probably, and better paid staff is probably part of it. I'm wondering, like, in terms of how we support, uh, you know, aside from just numbers and 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 dollars, are there, uh, do, do, you, uh, do you have any thoughts on how we uh, get at that issue of compassion uh, fatigue that you uh, that you, you, you talked about? And are, are there maybe, like, things that we need to bring into the conversation to really address that issue of compassion fatigue that you talked about in a long-term care sector? Thank you for bringing this up because this is such an important topic for healthcare workers. And I think that it is not a new topic, but it has become a lot more relevant in the last couple years. And I actually learned about compassion fatigue in my program um, in, in lecture, but I I got to see it more in my placements where I'm working around seasoned nurses. And at one point, we actually had a compassion fatigue specialist who I believe was the first one ever in in the city who got into, I wish I could remember her name, but she got into this line of work because she had been experiencing compassion fatigue for like a decade. And it wasn't until she approached someone higher up who told her I think you might be experiencing this and she had never heard of it in her life and she had been nursing for for years at that point so I think number one is education is going to be a huge thing because maybe not everyone who works in healthcare but maybe in even other types of of work you know in social services for example um, people who are dealing with not, I guess, like traumatic things, or, um, you know, anything that anything that can can really take its toll on your mental health, we as humans start to develop ways to cope with it, um, whether we know it or not. And I would love to see some kind of mental health resource be provided to healthcare workers and other people who are in any of these kinds of jobs so that they can properly deal with this so they don't get to that point of compassion fatigue because that ultimately impacts their care towards their patients and people who like you said you know we would hope that in long-term care that you would see the ultimate compassion but and and again i'm not excusing any kind of neglect or or negative behavior towards any residents but when you've been beaten down by the system for decades, chances are it's going to take a bit of a toll on the level of compassion that you have towards people. And perhaps we as a province can be a bit more proactive in that and ensuring that not only are our residents cared for and healthy, but the people that are caring for them are healthy as well. So I think that a big part of that is going to be addressing the issue of compassion fatigue, addressing the mental health um, and ultimate health of our healthcare workers. And a big part of that too, though, is going to be ensuring that, that they have a healthy workplace. So you mentioned, you know, the four government has a plan to put beds in, I believe it was 15,000. I, I would like to see that come to fruition because it's been two years now and, and I, I haven't seen any evidence of that thus far. Um, and, you know, when we have, so many people who are currently waiting in ALC, which is alternative level of care beds in the hospitals, which cost us thousands of dollars a day, mind you, they are waiting to get into a long-term care bed. So they're, they're, they're essentially taking up a bed in a hospital that we desperately need for other people, but they have nowhere to go. So obviously we're going to keep them there. We're spending thousands of dollars a day on caring for that person when we could send them to a invest that money into a long-term care or community-based place so so they can have the proper care that they need you know it's just the, even just the allocation of money itself in a long in, in our healthcare system would be 
a part of the solution. And I guess one of the, uh, I, I mean, there aren't a lot of benefits of the crisis, but um, I, I think a lot of people have been talking about long-term care facilities as sort of a ticking time bomb and, and people not understanding how dire the situation actually was. This has exposed it um, and everybody knows what's going on now and are now hopefully thinking of you know policy solutions, reforms that we can uh, start talking about and implementing in the future so that um, not only does this not happen the next time around where you know, now we're looking at 80% of the COVID-related deaths happening in long-term care facilities, but that we can improve the quality of life, the quality of work for staff, and just the overall sort of long-term care health system that we have here in the province. So that is sort of a positive side effect, if we can call it that, and if we actually can get together and, you know, demand those types of reforms from, from, our, from our politicians and our government. You know, and I'm hopeful uh, that we will continue having people like Tyler who are going to be out there talking about this, and um, and and we will continue talking about this on on our pod as well until until something changes. So thank you for coming on, Tyler. Yeah, my pleasure. This I'm I'm so glad to to see that these things are being talked about in the public now, and you know the military report. I think it it shocked people and it has started a conversation that really needed to be had a long time ago the unfortunate thing is is that none of this is new um and we've known about this for a long time there's endless reports from the rnao um, and other um, healthcare unions and even journalists investigations towards these things so this is this stuff is not new but at least it's out there now and hopefully it will put a fire underneath the Ford government to do something about it. And if they don't, um, it's going to be a giant topic in 2022. And I'm sure that other parties are going to take this issue pretty seriously. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. This was a bit of a longer episode, I'll admit, but we really wanted to do a real 360 on what our hospital and long-term care wait times mean, why they exist, and how they impact people uh, who administrate the system and who deliver the services. So I want to send a big thanks to Dr. Bob Bell and Tyler Watt for coming on and sharing their insights today. You can learn all about Dr. Bob Bell at drbobbell.com, drbobbell.com. He also has a book out called HIP uh, and all the proceeds for purchasing that go to the Apprentice Margaret Cancer Foundation. So uh, definitely check that out. Uh, Tyler Watt uh, has a bunch of amazing social media products that you should follow, including a YouTube channel and a podcast called What's Going On. Highly recommended listens. Follow them. They have a lot more to say than just what they said in our podcast today. So uh, check them out. This episode also featured research and writing supplied by Harmon Mundy. I sort of tweaked it and made it into a discussion guide, but Harmon really was the soul behind this podcast. So thank you, Harmon. Ontario Loud is Grumatel Kapoor, Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, Alexi White, me, Chris Martin. Aisha Anwar does our shareables and our social media. Harmon, uh, like I just said, does our research. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on Friday.